Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this is Green Socialist Notes, where we talk about education and organizing uh, to continue the advancement of the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. And so I usually have a few remarks and then we do question and answers and comments. Uh, I've been out petitioning to get the Green Party back on the ballot in New York State. Uh, it's just been my focus, especially this last week. We turn in our petition next Tuesday. So I was up at 530 this morning to get to the regional farmers market very early. Had a good morning, got 190 signatures. And uh, there's a blues and barbecue festival in downtown Syracuse, which hopefully will bring a lot of people. And uh, so I'm going to get at least 300 signatures for the day, which will be my best day. So I've not been following the news closely, but even not following it closely. I mean, the massacre in Texas, of course, has been top headline this week, and that follows up on the Buffalo terrorism that we saw the week before. Uh, which brings up, you know, the question of gun safety. Um, you know, position that we took during the presidential campaign is people have a right to arms if they're law-abiding, uh, but the public has a right to regulate uh, handguns and long guns in the interest of public safety. And the devil's in the detail finding the right balance. But I think what's clear right now is that we need universal background checks and we should probably ban the sale of assault weapons. Um, I was in the Marine Corps. We had an M16, this AR-15 today is even more powerful. You know, that's not for protecting your home or for hunting. That's for killing people military style. And that's what these two killers used in these last two massacres that have got all the attention. So um, we did that during the Brady Bill period. Uh, that was passed by... Uh, Republicans, um, and it had, you know, more background checks that also banned the sale of assault rifles for a period, and I don't have the statistics handy, but we had a radical drop in the number of uh, mass shootings because people didn't have access or as easy access to those assault weapons. Australia did the same thing in the mid-90s, and they had a, a radical drop, and it remained low in the number of mass shootings they have had. So, those two things seem to be just common sense things we could do to deal with this crisis. Um, there's deeper causes of this. You know, we have a uh, the racism that was manifest in Buffalo. It's a longstanding problem. I talked about that last week. We need anti-racist education in the schools. Um, and we got to fight back against this take back our schools movement from the right, which doesn't want to talk about the history of this country is a, is a, as it has affected ethnic minorities, racial minorities. Um, in fact, they want to ban books that even talk about that from being in public school libraries or in the curriculum, which is uh, not education. It's against education. So that's one thing. We have, you know, militarism run rampant. The military budget keeps growing. Uh, they have a huge PR uh, machine, you know, like every football game pro football game, you have a flyover by jets and uh, that kind of thing. And that 
You know, that promotes the idea that uh, serious problems can be solved by military force, which uh, if people stop to think for a minute, you know, we really haven't won a war outright since World War II. Uh, we've been pushed out of countries or come to a stalemate. You know, think of Korea, we're pushed out of Vietnam. Uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, it was never really clear what we were doing there besides supposedly going after terrorists. But the more we, you know, drone people and bomb people and killed civilians uh, inadvertently or sometimes purposely, uh, we created more so-called terrorists who wanted revenge for what we did to their families and communities. So, uh, you know, that has not been a solution to, you know, serious problems. And then we've got a problem of, you know, they call it toxic masculinity. Um, and, you know, many men decide that uh, their manhood depends on them having a gun and maybe using it. So there are deeper cultural problems that we've got to address as well. Um, but I think it's real clear. We went with universal background checks and ban the sale of assault rifles. Um, we would do, we would take some good steps toward reducing the, the amount of gun violence we have. I think I got the statistic right. I heard it as I was running around petitioning this week, but uh, the United States has had 57% more mass shootings than all other industrial countries combined. You know, people say it's so we got a mental health problem. I don't think we got more mentally ill people in the United States than anywhere else. Uh, we got more guns in the hands of people and we've got a culture where sometimes that's seen as a solution or the affirmation of your manhood, uh, which is a stupid way to affirm your manhood. So uh, I think those are two things that we should advocate. And uh, that's about all I got this week. Um, so let's, you know, I'd like to hear your comments and questions and, um, you know, bring up any other issues that are on your mind. I know there's been a lot of bad news about climate and, and you know, it's come out. I've just had a chance to read the headlines and skim some of these articles. But the basic picture is the climate's, the, the planet is heating up faster than the models predicted from the International Panel on Climate Change. And uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And uh, here we are doing nothing. Uh, we got a war in Ukraine, which whatever else you want to say about it, is also a war about oil, you know, and instead of uh, really emphasizing a rapid transition to clean energy, if you want to reduce the amount of oil and gas money going to Russia because of their uh, aggressive invasion of Ukraine, um, instead, what we're doing is the U.S. oil companies are trying to replace Russian oil companies and delivering oil and gas to Europe. Um, so it's become a you know kind of economic conflict and doing going the opposite direction of what we need to be doing with climate. So a lot of big problems out there not getting solved, and uh, that's why we've got the Green Party. So. See what see what you got to say in comments and questions. And Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Biden committing the U.S. military to defend Taiwan? Yeah, he's speaking out of school again. Uh, the U.S. policy has been strategic ambiguity while recognizing one China. Taiwan is part of one China. They're not going to be recognized as an independent country. But at the same time, we've been ambiguous about whether we would defend uh, Taiwan's status as a uh, electoral democracy, uh, not governed from uh, Beijing. 
to commit the U.S. military to defend Taiwan is, you know, Biden's being stupid again. He's he's uh, escalating tensions, uh, which the Chinese are doing their share of with more, you know, military operations in the strait between Taiwan and China with their ships and their uh, airplanes, uh, you know, going close to or violating Taiwanese uh, airspace. Uh, does the tension doesn't need to be escalated? And you know he's been stupid on Ukraine too by saying, unlike originally he said uh, we will def- you know help Ukraine defend itself if it comes to that, but we're not going to get engaged in a war with Russia because that could escalate to a nuclear war, and nobody wants that. In more recent times, he and other top leaders in his administration have been talking about a war to quote unquote weaken Russia. That was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Uh, Anthony Blinken reaffirmed that. The two of them were in, I guess they were in Lviv when they said that, or at least in Poland. They were, you know, over there in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and then you got, you know, hawkish members of Congress, the Democrat. Seth Moulton from Massachusetts saying uh, this is a war with Russia. It's a proxy war. Leon Panetta said the same thing. That's what Putin said. Putin said, we're not fighting Ukraine. We're fighting NATO in the U.S., uh, defending ourselves from them. And these idiots who are running the Biden administration basically say, yeah, Putin's right. That's what we're doing. And it may be what we're doing, and we shouldn't be doing that. We should be defending Ukraine and helping them defend themselves, really. Uh, but to you know go beyond that makes it harder to negotiate an end to the war. So, you know, Biden's always been a hawk. He was for the war in Iraq. Uh, Vietnam, he was very late in opposing that. Um, and by the time he got into the Senate, it was pretty much over. Um, always been for a bigger military budget. And he said stupid things like, you know, uh, Iraq should be divided into three parts, one for the Sunni, one for the Shia, and one for the Kurds, which would require, you know, ethnic cleansing of different territories. And who the hell is he to say how Iraq should be organized? Uh, it's just imperial arrogance. So uh, I don't think much of Biden saying uh, we're going to defend Taiwan. It's a change in U.S. policy. Of course, now it's ambiguous because other members of the administration says, well, that's not what he really meant. So he's, he keeps getting himself in that kind of situation. and uh, But, you know, people say he's losing it mentally. I don't think he's lost it that much mentally. I think he said what he really thinks, and that's scary. Amy L. Sachs, care to comment on Biden's half-baked relief for student loans? Thanks, and good luck with the rest of the Sixers' drive. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, Biden doesn't care about student debt, or he'd have done something by now. It'd be a big stimulus for the economy. It's politically very popular. I mean, the polling, even Republicans and strong majorities want to see relief for student loans. Um, Biden promised 10,000. Other people in the administration or in the Democratic Party, like Elizabeth Warren, have been advocating for 50,000. Bernie Sanders says complete, uh, you know, uh, cancellation of the debt and, you know, start with a, you know, a clean slate going forward. That's what we advocated in our presidential campaign. 
and going forward, that would mean that uh, what student loans students needed, because you can get free tuition, you still got to, you know, get rent and buy your books and feed yourself. Um, you know, we, we could have, uh, you know, grants for that, like we did during the GI Bill after World War II. But if you're going to a private school, um, you know, then you may have to borrow money to pay the tuition. Well, the loan term should be, we say, interest-free. There's no reason the federal government should be making money off your your student loan. The idea is to get you educated, so we lend you the money, and you pay it back. Uh, the only adjustment should be made is for the you know change in the value of the dollar for inflation. Um, but there shouldn't be interest added on the principal. I mean, I know people have been paying their principal. That's all they could afford in their interest. I mean, their interest for years. Their principal never goes down. Um, and then there are other people I know that there are they're on Social Security, and Social Security is now garnishing their benefit to pay off student loans. It's just uh, bleeding people for no good reason. So, um, yeah, Biden's, you know, he's doing token relief, to, like say he did something, but it's not really relief for the many people who need it. And many people, I forget the number, it's like 30, 40 million people. And the totals I've heard are between $1.7 and $1.9 trillion. It's an enormous uh, burden on the economy. Now would be a good time, as you know, a lot of prognostication is we're headed for a recession, to uh, take that burden off of people so they can spend their earnings on things like having a family, kids, buying a house, um, and other things they're deferring until they can get this student loan off their back. So, yeah, I don't think much of Biden's policy on student loans is along with many other things. Eric Gray, my local area in Florida thinks it's a good idea to add more police into our schools as a response to the Texas shooting. Howie, I think you need, I, I need you to comment on this. Yeah, well, what happened to that resource officer in that school in Texas? Apparently he was AWOL. Um, and a resource officer is really in there, you know, to break up fights and uh, to counsel students. Um, and they're not trained and they're not armed and equipped to deal with a guy. And we've had this twice coming in with body armor. So they, you know, the bullets bounce off of most of their body and AR-15 assault weapons. Um, so you know, putting more police in the schools and then, you know, the NRA and the Republicans are saying arm the teachers who aren't trained to deal with weapons and, you know, the tactics of dealing with a shooter. I mean, it's just, it's not realistic. You know, we've got to prevent, uh, we got to set up the situation so we prevent the shooters from even coming in with assault weapons and body armor and all that. Um, and then, you know, that's part of the general trend of, uh, after what were called the largest demonstrations in U.S. history in response to the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, um, we're now in a situation where they're not talking about police reform. They're talking about putting more police on the street, starting at the top with Biden and going right down to, you know, Democrats as well as Republicans at the local and state level. And as I've mentioned on this podcast, we had a murder in uh, downtown, the bar district, restaurant district, uh, where the shooter was 20, 30 feet from two cops and got away from that scene. 
he was eventually caught, but, uh, you know, those cops couldn't stop a murder. You need a police force in terms of crime to apprehend and figure out who did the crime. So you need detectives, you need investigators, um, and you need police who are trained in de-escalating situations so they don't get violent. It's a very different job than the idea that you just have more police out there with guns so people won't do crime. That's not uh, the way it works. Um, there's, you can't find any correlation between more cops on the street and lower crime. Um, low, the correlations are with reduction in poverty, um, better community police relations. I've talked before about what they did in Richmond, California, when they had uh, Gail McLaughlin, who was a green as mayor, and brought in a new police chief. And they had, instead of uh, police that had basically focused on, uh, you know, grabbing people, uh, and it was sort of a racially profiled, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of thing that they had done as former military people in Iraq, for example busting down doors and, and snatching people. Uh, instead, they had the police walk beats, get to know their communities, uh, and develop a rapport so that the people in the community would let them know when you know, a situation was developing that uh, could lead to crime or violence. And on the other side, they provided special aid to the youth most at risk. This was a city of about 100,000, 80% Black, Asian, and Latino that uh, had a, over 40 murders a year, one of the highest rates in the country for decades. And in the eight years that Gail McLaughlin was mayor and this police chief was in charge, they reduced the murder rate from, I think it was 44 the first year to seven the last year. So that's a program that worked. And then, you know, after they left, uh, they reduced the uh, funding for the uh, community programs that were aimed at preventing crime and uh, crime, the murder rate went back up, not to what it was before, but like to 20 in that range. So half of what it was before, but, you know, two or three times what it was by the end of this program they implemented. So there are things that the police can do, but um, just having more cops um, doesn't prevent crime. You need enough to investigate and find out who did crimes and bring them to justice. Um, but, and of course, the other thing is we don't need cops to be, you know, giving vacancy uh, violations to homeless people who need a home, not, not the criminal justice system, or to drug addicts. They need drug treatment. They don't need criminal treatment. That's a health issue, not a um, criminal issue. So we should be asking the cops to do, do less, but do what they do better. And what they should do good is investigate and solve crimes. And their uh, rates on doing that are pretty low. I can't remember statistics right now, but you'd be surprised at how many uh, murders go unsolved, how many uh, you know, major property crimes go unsolved. Um, and there's where oftentimes you don't have enough trained investigators and detectives to you know, really find out what happened. So there's a place for the police, but it's not just putting them on the street in their patrol cars instead of walking the beat and getting to know people. Um, and also, you know, there are other aspects to that. One of the things they did in, in Richmond was they uh, had incentives for people to live in the city. 
Um, in fact, you could live for free in public housing in Montana. Uh, lived in public housing. Um, <laughs> it's very different than my city of Syracuse, where about 90% of the cops live outside the city. They're white. The city's over half people of color. And uh, they don't really know the people in the city. And they don't treat them that well in many instances either. And we've been under a federal uh, court order. What do they call it? Uh, forget the name. But anyway, they were supposed to diversify the police force so, so it reflected the community. Since 1980, never got close. And it's still a situation today. So there's a lot of police reform. And instead, we got this emphasis on, you know, just putting more money into the police departments and putting more cops out in their patrol cars. Uh, without solving these other problems. So I'm looking in the chat. Vera Institute of Justice has arrest trends showing closure rates and other statistics about how successful the police are at solving. Yeah, um, that may be where I, I, I think, yeah, people should check that out. Uh, that may be where I've seen these pretty startling statistics of how poor the police are at solving crimes. Frankie Lee, what would be the most effective way to help mitigate the expected recession that's coming? Well, I think student debt relief would be one. Uh, but the main thing is instead of relying on the private sector to pull us out, this is a good opportunity for a Green New Deal through the public sector to build a new energy system. That will get the economy going. It'll build lots of new capital equipment that will pay off for years and years, requires a big investment, in hiring people to build it from the manufacturing of the components to the assembly and construction on site, uh, redoing the grid so it's a smart grid. Uh, there's just so much work to be done. Retrofitting the big job creator is retrofitting all our buildings for energy efficiency, heating and cooling by heat pumps instead of natural gas uh, or uh, heating oil and other fossil fuels. I mean, there's just so much to be done that we could, you know, rocket out of a recession by going with the Green New Deal. So I think, you know, public investment and uh, relieving the burden, you know, on, on, on debtors, particularly student debt, but medical debt should uh, be relieved. And there we should go to a public, you know, health service um, where... Healthcare is free at the point of delivery. It's funded through the progressive tax structure, and it's a right for everybody who, who lives here. So instead, what we're going to get is, uh, well, they're raising interest rates, which is going to slow the economy in the interest of fighting inflation. Now, the inflation issue, that's another part of it. And it, they, conventional economics sort of makes it a trade-off between inflation and employment. Um, but what we got, the, the, the big cause of inflation right now is a shortage of supply. And uh, so that means more production. So you want to stimulate production, get the supply up, and that'll bring the price down. Um, we also need antitrust. You know, what is it? Two baby formula companies control 90% of the market. And Abbott, who had his sturdy factory just shut down for four months and created this crisis. Um, there's a lot that needs to be done through the public sector, both regulating and in some cases owning and directly employing people to make the things 
and provide the services that we need. Um, that's the way to get out of a recession rather than the, you know, the old thing is they're going to raise interest rates to fight inflation and then they'll go into a recession and then they'll uh, deficit spend, which basically means contracting with, you know, private industry to provide goods and services that could be provided more efficiently directly by the, you know, public agencies, you know, doing it. I've used the example in the past, you know, there's a lot of talk about a civilian climate corps and modeled on the Civilian Conservation Corps. Now, the Civilian Conservation Corps in the New Deal was a public agency. They developed the projects. They hired the people. It was run through the public sector. What they're proposing to do with this uh, climate, uh, this Civilian Climate uh, Corps is contracted out to, you know, nonprofit organizations, agencies, or even companies who will make grant proposals to AmeriCorps um, so you're going to create a whole layer of bureaucracy. You're not going to have the coordination of that a national plan of, uh, you know, climate mitigation would, would do. Um, it's just, you know, it's this privatization of everything under the sun when a lot of things are done more efficiently and more effectively through the public sector. So, but I think public investment and public production and public employment is the most effective way to get us out of the recession. Scout Trooper 164, what is your counter argument to Sagar and Jetty who wants to invest in nuclear energy with solar power being limited? Eh, these guys just make me laugh. I mean, look, you can get a lot more electricity by investing in solar power than you can from nuclear energy. You can get it a lot faster. It takes, you know, at least a decade, usually a couple, and in some cases more, to get the damn nuclear power plants built. And then you got the waste problem. You got the danger of a catastrophic accident that you don't have with solar power. Um, you know, people like this guy and others have just bought the nuclear industry line. Now they're trying to sell you know, smaller modular nukes as somehow safer. Well, maybe they're safer because they're smaller and they don't have as much radiation to put out. But they've been talking about this for decades. And the smaller units have less um, scales, uh, economies of scale. So they're, they're not less uh, expensive for the, you know, uh, kilowatts that come out of them. And then they talk about, you know, thorium nukes and these other... Uh, you know, system different than the uh, nukes that we have now. They were experimenting with that going back to the 1940s, and they failed. So this is just a lot of hogwash. Um, we'll get more clean energy uh, per dollar spent from solar and from wind than we will from nuclear. So, I mean, this guy needs to look at what's happened with the recent nukes that have been built. You know, the, the Obama administration provided loan guarantees to build new nuclear power plants. They got the first ones ordered since we occupied the Seabrook nuclear power plant in 1977. And, you know, that really made the anti-nuclear movement blossom. And then you had Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, and the industry just didn't want to take the risk. The other thing about nukes is private insurance will not insure them. So that's why we have the Price-Anderson Act, which provides 
uh, insurance from the government, but it's not full coverage. It's up to a certain limit, uh, which if it's a real bad accident will be surpassed. So we can't even insure these things from catastrophic accident. Um, so it's just a you know terrible idea. It's probably the most unsuccessful industrial enterprise we've had in the modern era. Uh, a lot of them want to shut down because they can't pay their own way and they're getting subsidized. Like here in New York, we're in the middle of an $8 billion ratepayer subsidy of four nukes upstate that, uh, what's the company out of Chicago? Entergy? Ex oh, what's the other one? Exelon? I'm getting them mixed up, but one of them in Chicago, I think it was Exelon, uh, wanted to shut down because they weren't making money. So, you know, they're subsidizing them in the name of, quote, unquote, clean energy. And these nukes are getting old. I mean, the more older they are, the more brittle their parts become because they've been bombarded with radiation. So they're more prone to serious accidents. I mean, this is just a stupid idea. And, you know, why a guy that's I know he's a conservative, but um, he doesn't have to be stupid. <laughs> Promote nuclear power at this point. I was telling you about the nukes. So. The Obama administration uh, provided loan guarantees, so they started building two in South Carolina and two in Georgia. The ones in South Carolina, the projects were shut down because of cost overruns and construction delays. They're having the same problem with the two in Georgia at the Vogel site. But the state keeps subsidizing them because Governor Kemp is a creature of the industry, the Southern Company and Duke Energy. And... Uh, so they keep throwing good money after bad. Those nukes are, I think they the two were going to cost something like $12 billion. They're now up to like $30 billion, something like that. You know, more than double original cost. They were supposed to be online and running years ago. They're still, they just, I read about a new delay about a month ago. Um, nukes are complicated pieces of equipment. Solar panels are simple. I mean... When I was working in construction, we used to build them. We used to build them from scratch. Now, the ones that we've got today are a lot more efficient in converting sunlight to electricity. We've got much more sophisticated technology, but the basic principle is simple. And it's not uh, a technology. If, you're, if your panel gets hit by, say, you know, a windstorm and, and gets uh, ripped up, it's not a disaster. Whereas if a tornado, you know, hits a nuclear power plant and you know, rips it apart, you might have a real serious problem. So, man, oh, man, this nuclear question keeps coming up, and it's just astounding to me. The, the nuclear industry has been a disaster the whole time. But I guess we've got to keep arguing against it. Bobby Battaglia, what do you do about the border? Well, we've advocated for open borders. Let people cross the borders like they did traditionally. We didn't have a closed border with uh, Mexico or anywhere else until the 20th century. And it was all about, at that time, uh, trying to keep America whiter. That's really the motivation. Uh, they didn't want Asians coming in. They didn't want Latin Americans coming in. They didn't want Italians and East Europeans coming in because white back then meant really, you know, kind of waspy white. Um, and the other thing is a lot of people that come across the border they are coming to do jobs that other people already here won't do, and they want to send the money back home uh, or work here for a while and go back home. So 
it works both ways. We should check at the border, you know, have people check in. And if there's not a, a warrant out for their arrest or they're on some terrorist list, um, you know, let them move on to shop, to visit, to work, or to reside. Um, and we got to figure out how to do this because we're going to have hundreds of millions of climate refugees. It's already baked into the climate system globally. They're already on the move in many places. I mean, just look at the mass starvation and mass migration in Somalia and uh, the Horn of Africa right now. It's a disaster area. And with global warming, the desertification of uh, former farmlands and pasture lands is just getting worse. People are going to move. And then the other areas are going to be flooded like Bangladesh. So we need to have a way that people can move and get settled in other areas where they can be productive and contribute to the economy um, rather than just locking them out and watching them starve just over the fence or, or, you know, like now in Mexico, be subject to criminal gangs, taking advantage of them in many different ways. Um, that's just uh, inhumane. And in the end, probably not uh, protecting our own security because those people, you know, they, they're building up resentments against what the U.S. is doing and they may seek revenge. So uh, better to, you know, help people who need help and get them settled. And 99.99% of them are going to become uh, productive contributors to our economy and society. Bobby Battaglia, would you work with the Libertarian Party to get more Libertarians and Greens elected in Congress? Well, we do work with the Libertarians on issues where we agree, like fair ballot access, uh, drug policy reform, cutting the military budget and the overseas uh, military uh, projection that, that we have in 800 foreign military bases. Um, so we work together on issues. I'm not sure how we'd work together to get both Libertarians and Greens elected because each party is going to and each candidate in those parties is going to raise money for their own campaigns. Now, you might think we could uh, say Libertarians run in this district and Greens run in that district, but I don't think we take many votes from each other. Um, you know, it's to the extent these parties take votes from major parties, it's Libertarians from Republicans and Greens from Democrats. But the bigger truth is that both parties bring out voters who won't vote for the major parties. Um, so they bring new voters to the table. So, I, you know, we do work with the Libertarians on issues that we agree on. Um, but as far as helping each other elect each other to Congress, I'm not sure how you would do that. I don't, I don't think. But we, we do advocate for a multi-party system based on proportional representation. And that's one issue I hope we can work together on. Uh, because then you will get Libertarians in Congress as well as Greens. And uh, that'll change the whole dynamic with a four-party system. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, Greens, and and Libertarians, the dynamic in Congress will change because instead of being a zero-sum game where it pays to go negative, even though you get mud on your own hands, you get mud all over the person you're attacking. Um, if you have more than two parties, three or four, uh, it doesn't pay to go negative because you're going to need uh, other people in, in coalition around certain issues. So like when it comes to drug policy reform, 
you know, decriminalizing drugs and treating addiction as a health problem rather than a criminal problem. Uh, Greens and libertarians are going to be together. Uh, some progressive Democrats, some more libertarian Republicans, but then you're going to have a whole lot of law and order Democratic and Democrats and Republicans who are not going to be with us. Uh, you turn to another issue like uh, cutting the military budget. Greens and libertarians will work together. Maybe some progressive Democrats, a few Republicans, but most of the Democrats and Republicans are military hawks. Um, but then another issue like uh, universal public health insurance, you know, Medicare for all. The Greens and progressive Democrats are going to be together. Libertarians are more likely to be with the Republicans and the conservative Democrats on that. So you see the coalition shift. And if you want to work in coalition around issues, you don't want to be, you know, demonizing your opponents on certain issues because you're going to need to work with them on another issue. So the whole dynamic will be a lot more constructive, I believe, if we have a multi-party system. And uh, I hope the Libertarians and Greens can work together in promoting that through proportional representation in the House. There's a bill called the what's it called the Fair Elections Act, I think. Uh, it's Don Beyer and Virginia is the prime sponsor. Jamie Raskin is one of the sponsors. And it would set up ranked choice voting for multi-member districts, which yields proportional representation. And uh, we really got to push that. That's the game changer. So that's, uh, that's what I think about how we can work with the libertarians. Blonde Boy Wilson, Broom Tioga Green Party is inactive. Do I have to start my own chapter since your campaign and the New York State Party don't respond to my inquiries? Um, I'm wondering where you put your inquiries because we do have somebody responding. Um, and yeah, Tioga uh, Broom uh, is an older group and, and, and one of the uh, key activists uh, had some medical issues recently. So it hasn't been that active, um, but I'll tell you what, uh, let's put up the uh, Hawkins Matera uh, website there. There's a way to contact our campaign and uh, we'll get back to you. And uh, if that's a synonym, uh, what's the word, synonym or, you know, Blind Boy Wilson is a synonym, uh, let us know that, you know, it's you calling because I want to make sure we get back to you. Yeah, hawkinsmatera.org. There's a contact page there uh, where you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you. We file petitions on Tuesday. Give us a little bit, a couple days after Tuesday, because between now and then, that's all we're doing. But we'll get back to you. Duck. Hey, Howie. What would be your, the Green Party solution to the various abortion regulations and anti-LGBT bills across various states? Well, first of all, I mean, we would want uh, the protections of abortion in the Roe decision to be codified in federal legislation. I think it's called the Women's Reproductive Health Act. It used to be called the Freedom of Choice Act has been languishing in Congress really since the 90s. And there have been periods under Clinton, Obama, and Biden where you had Democrats in control of both houses. 
and particularly under Obama, where they had a supermajority in the Senate when he was first elected. So the filibuster couldn't have stopped him. And Obama had campaigned. That was going to be one of the first things he did. And then he never talked about it and uh, it never came up. And so here we are where, you know, a conservative Democrat like Manchin joins with Republicans. So even if we got past the filibuster, we probably can't get that passed with the Congress we got now. So that's one thing. Um, and then, you know, anti-LGBT bills across the country, maybe we need federal legislation to preempt that, like legislation that would preempt the anti, uh, the voter suppression laws that have passed and also the uh, control of partisan control of the election process, which Republicans are passing so they can basically steal elections in states where this is happening. Um, so there's a lot of things that could be done at the federal level uh, to protect rights, like, you know, lay gizbian, bisexual, and transgender uh, rights to, to non-discrimination. Uh, the Equality Act, which has passed the House and would uh, ban discrimination in all federal uh, programs and policies against LBGT people, um, as well as women who aren't formally protected across the board in federal uh, legislation and regulations, uh, that should pass. And again, we run up in the Senate where that might pass if we could lift the filibuster, but that's a case where the Democratic leadership, you know, Biden and Schumer in this case, really haven't made it a priority. And in fact, there are a lot of Democratic senators who quietly oppose lifting the filibuster. Uh, their rationale is, well, the Republicans are going to take control and we need to stop them like they stopped us, uh, which I think is a very negative way of looking at things. If you actually did something, Democrats, maybe people would vote you in and the Republicans wouldn't get back. You know, people are disgusted. I mean, I've been trying to get young people engaged in this election this year as candidates or just as activists. And they're like throwing up their hands. We got rid of Trump and nothing happened. You know, they're mad, but they're also sad and depressed. And, you know, then the Democrats, you know, say, well, we need to keep the filibuster, some of them, so we can stop the Republicans. Yeah, and then you keep it in the Republicans stop you. Nothing gets done and people disengage, which is exactly what the power structure wants, because then they can do what they want in issues they care about, which is pro-corporate economic policies and an imperialistic foreign policy. So kind of ranting here about the damn Democrats because I'm out there trying to get signatures from people that say, yeah, you're going to take votes from the Democrats. And, you know, of course, I, I say, you damn right we will. We do. We want to. But we also bring more voters out that otherwise wouldn't vote because they're not voting for the Democrats or the Republicans. And besides, you know, shouldn't the voters decide who gets to be in an election and, and gets to be elected so that issues can be raised? rather than, you know, suppressing the Green Party. You know, suppressing parties is what authoritarian governments do. And you've got liberal Democrats uh, going along with that because it's all about tactics and the Republicans and nothing about principles. And, of course, we have solutions to the vote-splitting spoiler problem. Ranked choice voting for executive officers, proportional representation for legislatures. And... That's what, you know, these people should be fighting for. Instead, they, they're fighting to suppress the Green Party, which means suppressing in New York State uh, a, a state-level Medicare for All program, which is enormously popular. And the Democrats promised they would pass it 
if they got the state Senate, they've had it now four years. And every session, the bill can't get out of uh, the committees now. The assembly had passed it many times since the 1990s. Now they can't even get out of committee because the real power structure that runs the Democratic Party is the money, the insurance company money. And when the Democrats did get the state Senate, both houses and the governorship, the insurance money started rolling into the Democratic Party. So they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. They answer to their paymasters, not their voters. Um, so that's all to say, you know, what we really need is more Greens in office, a multi-party system. So the Democrats aren't just uh, saying they would, you know, they defend Roe, but they won't pass a bill to codify Roe in the House. And, you know, let voting rights languish and let the filibuster stay. And these anti-LGBT bills, um, you know, don't say gay and all that nonsense. You know, Democrats at the federal level are not prioritizing that, um, even though it's, you know, real bigotry. And then they turn around and whine about the Republicans' racism, but um, where's their action on voting rights? You know, they, they, haven't, they haven't been able to get that passed. Something they used to pass, you know, to get the Voting Rights Act uh, reinstated. Uh, now it needs to be revised so that it can overcome Supreme Court decisions that gutted it. And now the Republicans all say no, and the Democrats all say no to lifting the filibuster so they could pass it. It's, uh, it's why we need the Green Party. Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts on Starbucks harassing its workers and firing the union leaders? Yeah, Starbucks, Amazon, any damn company you name, they don't want the workers unionized. So, you know, the, if you're a worker and you're organizing, you just got to be prepared to roll with those punches and keep fighting. Um, this has been going on as long as the you know, workers have tried to organize in the unions to defend their uh, wages and working conditions and benefits. And, uh, you know, the thing about the unions that are being organized at Starbucks and Amazon is that these folks are mostly doing that on their own without the support of uh, major labor unions in this country. And they really had no choice because the major labor unions haven't been organizing. Uh, they've mostly been focused on defending what they got, which is a losing strategy because what they got keeps getting smaller and smaller. So I'm, I'm inspired by, you know, these young folks, particularly mostly young folks at Starbucks and Amazon organizing new unions. And uh, it's something we should all encourage and participate in when we can. We got a new Amazon fulfillment center, one of the biggest in the world, just opened up in our county. And already we've had uh, a couple, uh, you know, uh, a man and a woman there, a couple, they got fired for uh, union organizing. And they had, they had worked in that Staten Island plant and, you know, uh, worked with that effort. But they moved up here for cost of living reasons. And they got fired just for talking about the union. They really didn't, didn't have an organizing project going on. So this is everywhere. And... Uh, it's one thing I'm hoping the Teamsters with the new leadership that got elected 
uh, will will provide support for this organizing in Amazon because you know I worked at UPS. Amazon is key. If they remain an open shop, you know, union free, um, it's going to undermine the unionized workers at UPS and at the Postal Service. And we've had no problem with FedEx, which has a special deal going back to the Reagan administration, where you can't organize workplace by workplace. You got to have a nationwide a vote to, to organize because they're regulated as a uh, airline instead of a you know logistics company, a shipping company, and you know that should change. Um, that's a labor law reform that um, kind of thing you would think the Democrats would do. It's it's easy, it's obvious, but they that's not a priority. Um, so I was saying the teachers ought to help. Yeah, so the Amazon is key to that industry. And that industry is powerful because if workers decide, you know, they want something to change and they disrupt production in shipping, it has enormous effect throughout the economy. It has a lot of leverage. The UPS strike in 1997 just lasted two weeks because UPS was losing business to the Postal Service and the FedEx and DHL. And uh, they knew they had to come to terms, get back open. And uh, so there's a lot of leverage there. And that's so it's an important industry for workers to be organized in. And uh, I'm really encouraged. And then, you know, Starbucks is one of many, many, many uh, hospitality, fast food service industry uh, industries that workers are unorganized and getting, you know, starvation wages, inadequate hours. So, you know, for living standard reasons for working people, it's really important that that sector gets organized too. So my basic thought is, thank God they're organizing, more power to them, and I'll do whatever I can to help. Howie, would you meet with Kim? I guess that's uh, North Korea's Kim, like Trump did to get peace in the North or do what every president did and not meet with him. Um, well, I think you got to meet with your adversaries and negotiate. Um, they're the most important people that should be negotiated with. Um, so I, you know, I have no problem with meeting with Kim or anybody else uh, for serious negotiations. And there should be a diplomatic process going on leading up to that meeting so that you come out of it with something real, or at least you come out of it being able to explain why you didn't make progress. Um, but it's better to be engaged than disengaged and uh, doing nothing but demonizing. And there's a lot of problems in North Korea. I don't even want to get started. On the other hand, there are a lot of people there. Right now, they're getting hammered by COVID and hunger and uh, they don't have freedoms. So um, it's just important that you know, the president of the United States deal with the leader of North Korea. You also want to maintain the peace. And uh, <clears throat> the, relate, the war against between the North and South Koreas is an armistice. It's not a peace agreement. So there's something that could be negotiated. It's one of the things North Korea wants. They sort of want assurance that, you know, we're not going to come in there and overthrow uh, the Kim dynasty. And, you know, it's not up to us to do that. It's up to the people 
in North Korea if they want to change the government, which isn't to say that's easy, but it's not for us to do, uh, partly because it's, uh, you know, at risk, particularly now that they have nuclear weapons, nuclear war. Um, and you can understand why Kim and the leadership in North Korea got nuclear weapons, because they were named as part of the axis of evil by George W. Bush, and uh, that included Iraq, uh, included Libya, and Libya and Iraq gave up their nuclear programs. And look what happened to them. You know, the U.S. and NATO invaded them, overthrew their governments. So somebody like Kim looks at that and says, I better get some nukes to defend myself. Some people are saying the same thing about Ukraine. They gave up the nukes they inherited from the old Soviet Union and, and gave them to Russia in return for guarantees and what's called the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 by Russia, by the U.S., by Britain and France, that the territorial integrity of Ukraine would be uh, respected and defended by these great powers. And it hasn't been since at least 2014. So... Um, you know, leaders around the world, like look at the Iranian leaders now. Now, there's a headline I, I could have brought up at the beginning. Um, you know, we're very close to renewing the Iran nuclear deal. And now the, one of the sticking points seems to be that uh, Iran wants the Revolutionary Guards lifted from uh, the U.S. terrorism list, which has economic sanctions attached to it. And Biden has said, no. And some of the uh, speculation is that we're saying no because the deal isn't going to be done anyway. Uh, Russia threw some uh, sand in the gears of that agreement earlier, and they're the ones that are supposed to take the enriched uranium that Iran produces for its nuclear power plants so it can't be used for nuclear weapons. And if they're not cooperating, then the whole thing fall, could fall through, although other countries that have agreed including the U.S. and I think China's part of it, U.K. and France, I believe. Um, they could have picked up the slack if Russia pulled out. But it seems now that uh, for political reasons, Biden is not going to get a nuclear, Iran nuclear deal done before the midterms because he doesn't want to be attacked by the hawks in Congress. Um, so that's putting politics ahead of peace. And... Uh, that just gets to the nuclear question. We're getting nuclear proliferation, even though we have non-proliferation treaties, and it's the policy of the United States and other great powers not to see nukes spread to more countries. But that's what's happening. You know, North Korea is one example, and Iran could be another if this Iran nuclear deal uh, doesn't get done. Lomboy Wilson, would you and Jill Stein support a general strike with a strong list of demands? Yeah, we've actually had some discussion of that. Um, most general strikes in history were not planned in advance. They grew out of spontaneously out of uh, labor conflicts that spread across the metropolitan area. Uh, usually when uh, the company that was uh, the workers were in conflict with did something violent or had the police or the state militia come in. And then all the workers said, to hell with that. We're going out too. Um, a general strike is not something that you can sort of plan and set a date for in most circumstances. And then 
do we have the organization for that? A general strike means, you know, everybody goes out. We only have 6% of the private sector organized. If that, it's less than 6% in unions. And then would these unions support it? I mean, that requires a long organizing process. I think uh, what we should be demanding is reforms to the Taft-Hartley Act that bans sympathy strikes, secondary boycotts, the kind of labor solidarity actions that could develop into a general strike. It also would strengthen the labor movement. The, the Taft-Hartley Act was passed in, uh, what was it, 1946, when that Republican Congress got in there. And Truman called it a slave labor act, and it is. And, you know, Democrats had on their platform for years, decades, really until probably about the Clinton administration, repealing those sections of Taft-Hartley. Of course, they had majorities, particularly in the, you know, Kennedy-Johnson years, where they easily could have done it. But it wasn't a priority. And so here we are stuck with it. So I think um, rather than, you know, trying to start, go from zero to 100 with a general strike, we need to be organizing Starbucks, Amazon, uh, building up grassroots labor organization, fighting for labor law reform that gives us more freedom as workers to organize and take action. And uh, general strikes, read the history of general strikes. They, they are, you know, basically semi-spontaneous. I mean, in other words, you have to, sort of have, to have a pre-existing network and conditions, but nobody says we're going, we're going to have a general strike. It usually happens. There's a strike or a labor issue. And then the company or the state gets repressive. And then all the workers come out in solidarity. And then you have a general strike. Both parties are traitors. Hey, Howie, how is the signature collecting coming along? Do you have the most signatures you need? Um, well, it's coming along. It's uh, touch and go. We're submitting Tuesday. And uh, we're hopeful that uh, we, you know, nobody will challenge our petition. We got problems. Um, the state re, you know, set up redistricting. Um, or the, re the redistricting was thrown out of court because it was too gerrymandered by the Democrats. And so they had to redraw the districts. They had a specialist come in and, uh, you know, draw new maps, which then have been challenged themselves. But it was really a week ago Friday we got the new maps. We still don't have a list from the state uh, board of elections where we can you know, type in an address for somebody signed and find out what congressional district they're in because we have to get 500 signatures in half the congressional districts. That's 13 congressional districts in New York State. And we don't have the list. So we have to do an index telling the Board of Elections or whoever looks at the petitions where our distribution by congressional district is. We're going to have to guess with maps because you know, boundaries and street addresses. You know, when you get to the boundaries, it's hard to tell which district somebody will be in. So that's uh, another disadvantage facing us. So um, I guess I'd say we could be better. We could have overwhelming numbers of signatures. We don't, um, but we're going to submit what we've got and hope for the best. And hopefully we get on a ballot.
So, okay, our hour is up. I, I thank you all for coming. I'm going to go back out and petition. I'm going for 300 today. That'll be my biggest day. Got a good start at the farmer's market this morning, and hopefully this blues and barbecue festival have, will attract a lot of people. The weather is a little cool for Memorial Day weekend. It's in the 60s, but the sun has come out. It was raining this morning, so uh, hopefully we'll get a lot of people. And uh, if you haven't petitioned, it's a real eye-opener. If you haven't been out there talking to lots of different kind of folks, you'll hear from the Trumpies and the liberal Democrats that don't want you on the ballot. And, the people that are just fed up with politics or don't know about it, um, you'll find out that a lot of people really can't write. They can't spell the, the names of their own cities, uh, which tells you about the state of education in the society. Um, and other people, you know, they'll want to tell you, you know, what issues concern them. So if you get the opportunity, uh, go out and petition. I know they're finishing the petition in Wisconsin, another one in uh, Pennsylvania to get on the ballot. Um, I believe in Missouri. Uh, they're about to start again in Kansas, I believe. So, uh, and now I think in all the states, you don't have to live in the state to be a, a signature gatherer and witness of signatures. So I think uh, it's a good way to, you know, get out there and, and see what's going on with everyday people because uh, you're going to be talking to everybody you can. The more, more people you ask, the more signatures you're going to get. So, that's what's on my mind these days, signatures. Next week, I'll be able to talk about a lot more things. But uh, this week, that's just what I've had to focus on. So I hope you all have a good week. And we'll see you here next week at the same time. Oh.